part of our service each week, we come to the center, which is Jesus, and we come to Jesus both through the word and through sacrament. Jesus told us to read his word and preach his word, so we do that every week. Jesus told us to take a meal called communion to remember him, so we do that also every week. Joe is going to come and read the scriptures for us, and then we'll preach from them together. Where the Lord is taken from, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 to 25. That the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we give you thanks for this time. We pray that you would help us to not just be hearers, professional hearers of the word, but doers of what it says. Let us not just be students of the word, but practitioners of it. And so even in this hour, save us from the condemning practice of hearing your word, of even understanding it and doing nothing with it, but move us to be people that love you through your word and obey you through your word. So come by your Holy Spirit and animate our otherwise weakened hearts and souls to give ear to your word and to do what it says. Make Seven Mile Road Church a healthy church for the glory of God and the good of this city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When parents uh, leave their children for some time, usually instructions are given for how everyone's supposed to behave. So you'll tell the kids how they're to relate to one another. If there's an older child, maybe you'll leave that child in charge. You'll tell that child, you're in charge. Everyone's got to listen to you. You'll tell the younger kids, he's in charge. Make sure everyone listens to him. And instructions are given for how everyone's supposed to behave in your absence. In some ways, that's sort of what the entire letter of 1 Timothy has sort of felt like, right? Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came, lived, died, rose again for the forgiveness and salvation of his people went to heaven and promised that he would one day return. And then he sent his disciple, his follower, a man named Paul, an early leader in the Christian church who planted this church in a city called Ephesus. And then Paul gets called away to do other ministry and other work and in his absence puts Timothy in charge and basically writes this letter that we've been studying for these last several months called 1 Timothy as a letter to say, Here's what you're supposed to do in my absence. Here's what life is supposed to look like 
Here's how the church of God is supposed to behave. Here's how you're supposed to relate to one another. Timothy, I'm putting you in charge. Here's how you're to lead them and all of them. Here's how you're to relate to Timothy. And a bunch of this letter has been about what are we supposed to behave like in the church? What's life in the church supposed to look like? In particular, the sort of section of 1 Timothy that we've been spending the last few weeks in especially sort of zeroes in on what relationships between people in the church is supposed to look like. So, for example, last week, if you were here, we looked at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and there we heard that how we're supposed to relate to one another is like family. The older men are like fathers, the older women are like mothers, younger men and women are like brothers and sisters. Then we also looked at 6, verses 1 and 2, and we said, The gospel not only dictates how we relate here, but how Christians relate out there, outside the church, how we relate with people like our bosses and employers that we looked at in chapter 6, 1 and 2 last week. In chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, the passage right before the one we're looking at today, he tells instructions about how we're to relate to elderly parents, specifically widows, something we talked about some weeks back. And again, relationships within the church between Christians and their aging parents. Today, in the section we're looking at, chapter 5, 17 to 25, the passage Joe just read for us, he's going to talk about how the church is supposed to relate to its leaders or to its elders, another word for pastors. This week, we're talking about how the people are supposed to relate to the pastors or at Seven Mile Road, how you are supposed to relate to me or to Pastor Binu. This is one of those wonderfully awkward texts for a pastor to preach because I'm about to tell you how you're supposed to treat me, how you're supposed to view me, how you're supposed to pay me, right? How how much fun is that going to be? How you're supposed to deal with me if I'm good? How you're supposed to deal with me or Binu if, God forbid, we're ever living in public, gross, flagrant, God-dishonoring sin? How are you supposed to relate as the people of God two pastors. And if I could summarize everything he intends to say from 17 to 25 in this passage, it's basically this, that good pastors are to be honored, bad pastors are to be rebuked, and potential pastors need time. Okay, this is, if I could summarize this whole section, it'd be that we are to honor good pastors, we are to rebuke bad pastors, and we are to take our time with potential pastors. That's what I want to show you. Look at the first one. We're to honor good pastors. This is 17 and 18. Hear it with me. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So the first thing we want to ask is, How should a church relate to a good pastor? Now, before getting to that, we've got to ask, what makes a pastor a good pastor? And at least in this text, he's got sort of two things in mind, two specific things that he's thinking about in terms of what makes a pastor good. Those are the words, he must rule well, you see that in verse 17, and he must labor in preaching and teaching. Those are the two things that he has in mind for what makes a good pastor. Those that rule well and those that labor in preaching and teaching. Rule well, right? That is that an elder or a pastor is someone who's been charged by God to rule the church, to manage the church. Now, if you've been following 1 Timothy with us, that's not entirely new. 
And back in chapter 2, we heard that exercise authority, that phrase. In chapter 3, when it listed the qualifications of the kinds of men who can be pastors, if you remember back or if you look back in 1 Timothy 3, it says he has to manage his own household well. There's the word manage. Because if he cannot manage his house, how can he manage God's church? Right? The qualification was, look, if he can't rule well over his own little flock, how is he going to rule well over God's big flock? If he can't rule or manage or lead his home, how is he going to lead or manage God's family, God's home? And so the question that's being asked here is, does he rule well? Does he, do they direct the affairs of the church well? Are they leading the church well? Its members, its ministries, its mission, are they leading the church well? If an elder or elders rule well, and then the second one is, and if they labor in preaching and teaching, right? That also shouldn't surprise us. That also was part of the job description of elders. If you remember back again to 1 Timothy 3 and that long list of requirements, if you remember, there was only one competency in that list of character qualifications. The one competency required was he must be able to teach. These must be Bible men, right? And so the question is, are they studying the Bible? Are they living the Bible? Are they teaching and preaching and communicating the truths of the Bible? And are they doing that well? Do they rule well and do they labor in preaching and teaching? And I think that word labor is such a good word here, right? Do they labor in preaching and teaching? That the task of preaching and teaching is labor. When you hear the word labor, what do you tend to think of? All the, all the women in the room think of that moment when you had to give birth, right? And that groaning and straining and all the difficulty of trying to get this baby out. And I can tell you that is definitely what preparing to preach feels like, right? You're just groaning. You're grunting in a room by yourself trying to get this baby out, okay? I know I offended about every woman here. No, you don't know what labor is. Don't think you know what labor is, right? But I'm telling you, that's what it feels like. Ask any of the elder track men who've preached here. That week, they're in sackcloth and ashes and mourning because it is labor. Or, or probably the word that Paul was thinking about is just the idea of difficult, arduous, strenuous work. I'll never forget the first year that I was called to be a pastor. This is about seven or eight years ago now. I was in Boston my very first year. The only task that I was given was to preach. They didn't trust me with anything else. And so every other week I had to prepare to preach. I didn't have to think about leading the church, any of it, just preach. I remember that one week I had read everything I could read, studied everything I could study, listened to everything I could listen. I had given no less than about 40 hours trying to just crank out this sermon. And there it is, Saturday night, and I kid you not, I have a blank piece of paper in front of me. And so now it's Saturday night. I got to preach the next morning. I got nothing to say. And I remember we lived on the third floor of a, uh, an apartment complex. And I went out to the balcony and I looked in the sky and I was just like weeping like a little schoolgirl. Why, Lord? Right? Like, why don't you love me? Why won't you make this easy? I mean, just, I kid you not, like a schoolgirl. Just, I've been trying so hard. I got nothing to say. And, and the probably not so funny part is eight years later there's so many weeks that are just like that 
right? This task is labor. And, and what Paul's trying to communicate is, look, if these men are doing this work well, ruling well, laboring and preaching and teaching, this is difficult, strenuous work. In fact, Paul tries to communicate that in the metaphors that he chooses to describe pastoral ministry. In verse 18, think about the metaphors that he uses to describe pastoral ministry. He describes pastors to an ox, right? Think of that. Out of all the metaphors in the world that he could have chosen, he says, when I think of pastoral ministry, I think of an ox, right? What's an ox? This big, stinky, hairy beast of an animal that you put a plow on his back, you put weight behind him, and you tell him, pull. And he puts his head down, and step after step after step, he pulls that weight. And then he does it again, and he does it again, and he does it again, and he does it over and over again with the hope that when he's done, he'll be able to turn back and see a harvest in the field that he plowed behind him. Right? He, he uses ox. He doesn't use eagle like this majestic profession. Right? He doesn't use lion like this powerful, kingly sort of thing. He thinks of the beast of the field, that smelly, stinky, hairy ox. That's what he thinks about when he thinks of a pastor. You're going to plow, and you're going to plow, and you're going to plow, and you're not going to see any of the fruit immediately of all your work, and you're not sure if any of it is profitable or if all your labor is in vain, but you're going to do it, and you're going to do it again and again, and put your head down and do it again. And Seven Mile Road has two now oxen. That's what your pastors are. We're your oxen. We're your laborers, right? The laborers deserve his wages. That's the other term he thinks of. He thinks of probably a hired hand or someone who works a job at construction or probably a farmer in the field. That's the metaphor he thinks of. He thinks of a farmer in the field. What's the life of a farmer like? Up before dawn, plowing again, doing this work, not sure if harvest will come, but doing it faithfully nonetheless, hoping to reap a harvest. What's the life of a farmer like? If you remember back to the Super Bowl, you remember that Dodge Ram commercial with the voice of Paul Harvey and the farmer? Right? On the eighth day, God made a farmer. You needed this, this, and this, and so God made a farmer. When you finish watching that commercial, you're like, I love farmers. I don't know any farmers, but I just love them all. I want to be a farmer. That's what Paul thinks of when he thinks of pastoral ministry. An ox with its head down. A farmer doing his work. And he says, look, if you have a man or a team of men who serve the church by ruling well and laboring in preaching and teaching and doing that well, you have good pastors. So then, how should we treat good pastors? Verse 17 says that they should be considered worthy of double honor. Right? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, what's that? What's double honor? Actually, the verses around our passage help us to understand what it is. Because the verses after 17 to 25 and the verses before 17 to 25 help us understand what he means by double honor. Because the word honor shows up both before and after our passage. It shows up after our passage in chapter 6, verse 1, something we looked at last week, and it was talking about how you are to honor your masters or those who are in authority over you. And there, the word honor has a clear meaning. It's the sense of the attitude of your heart, 
that you're supposed to respect and show esteem and hold in high regard these people who have authority over you. So that's one meaning of honor. But also the word honor shows up in chapter 5, verse 3, when he's talking about poor old widows. And in 5, verse 3, when he's talking about these old-aged widows who can't afford anything to eat, who can't live on their own, he tells the children to honor these widows. And by it, he doesn't just mean, make sure you have a good attitude towards them. He's saying, no, no, make sure that you honor them by supporting them, by feeding them, by caring for them, by financially supporting them. And so here, when he talks about good elders who rule well and who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor, he's sort of pulling from both of these and saying, both of these are the kinds of honor that you should show to good pastors. That is, that you should have high regard and esteem and hold them and regard them highly, the attitude of your heart, but also that you should support them, financially provide for them and care for them and to do that well. Essentially what he's saying is you're to take good pastors and you're to treat them well and pay them well. You're to treat them well and pay them well. We know that the word honor here has the sense of attitude. That one's easy. But we also know that it has the sense of compensation. It's honor and sort of honorarium, both together. And we know that because of what comes next, right? The verse next clarifies this sense of what he means by honor. We know that in the old times, this word honor that's used here in this passage was literally a word used to describe a physician's salary. Same word, sort of the idea of compensation. By the way, if you want to pay Binu or I like physicians, we have no compromise or complaints with that. It's totally biblical if you want to do that, right? He's saying here, honor in terms of your attitude and honor in terms of how you support. And we know that because of verse 18. Look at what he says. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborers deserve his wages. Now, why does Paul throw in this verse about oxen all of a sudden? He says, if a pastor is a good pastor, he's ruling well, he's laboring and preaching and teaching, then you are to make sure that you show him double honor. And then he gives this verse about the oxen. Now, this is not the first time in the scriptures where he uses that verse. Let me actually show you another section where he shows this same verse, and it's 1 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 12. I want to read it for you. He's writing to another church, this time a church plant in Corinth, and he is not getting from this church double honor, neither in their attitude nor in their support. And so he's trying to write them to show them that he has rights here, rights that he's more than willing to let go of for the sake of the gospel, but rights nonetheless. Listen to what he says to that church, and you'll hear the same verse we're looking at. This is verses 6 through 12. He says, Or is it only Barnabas and I, that's Paul, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So he's saying, are, are we supposed to serve the church but also not get anything from the church and go try and find another job? He says this in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of it, any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, and here's our verse, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? 
It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Here's what Paul's saying. To this church plant where he is laboring and ruling well, and yet is not being shown double honor. He's commending them that he has rights as their minister in the gospel, rights which he will gladly forego for the sake of the gospel, but rights that he wants them to be clear about nonetheless. Right? He says in verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Right? What he's asking is, look, in our own military, do we send out soldiers and expect them to pay for their service as soldiers? How backwards would that be? Do we not rather compensate our soldiers for the service that they provide for us? Who of us would expect that soldiers who enlist would pay their own way in order to protect and serve us? By no means. We compensate and provide for soldiers who provide and protect us. He goes and thinks about, or who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk. He's saying, look, can you imagine if there was a farmer who did all the hard work of sowing and reaping and tilling and toiling and and harvesting and then was starving to death? Would that make any sense? Would it make any sense to have a farmer do all of that work, working to death and yet starving to death? He says, no, if if you plant a vineyard, you're going to share in some of its fruit. If you tend a flock, you're going to get some of its milk. And Paul's point is, if pastors are caring for the church well, is it too much to think that the church would then care for pastors well? Right? If pastors are caring for the church well, is it too much to think that the church would care for pastors well? And then we get the verse we're looking at about the ox. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? And Paul says, here, you you think I'm just making this up because I want a buck from you? He says, no, doesn't the law of God say the same thing? And he cites the law to say, look, Do you remember the law that God had given to his people Israel? What was the law? The law was, well, if you've got an ox that is plowing a field, it is not right or acceptable and cruel, and you will not put a muzzle on that ox to prevent him from eating the very grain he's treading for you. You don't do that. You make sure that you take care of your ox. You make sure that that ox is well-fed and supplied for and provided for. You're not going to work him to death and then starve him to death at the same time. Hear that again? You're not going to work him to death and starve him to death. And Paul's point is, is God's concern here for oxen? Or is it not written for us? Right? Paul's point is, if God cares about your ox... Do you not think he cares about your pastors? If he's provided a law to make sure that your oxen are well fed and supplied for, do you not think he had in mind to provide for your pastors to make sure that they are supplied for? Or do you imagine that God is the kind of father who will feed his pet while starving his sons? That's not who the Lord is. 
And so he says in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul's point is, look, if your life was headed for an eternity in hell, and yet under the ministry of a faithful, godly pastor, you have now received eternal life. How are you going to ever pay that back? Right? Not temporary, done in a few years. You have now eternal life, blessings now that come for generations to come. Your life was headed a certain way. It got turned around. Now that benefits your marriage, your children for generations to come. And all these spiritual things were sown into you. Are you going to now quibble about supporting him with physical things? Right? I I can tell you for me, When I was in Boston, I was a part of many churches for a long time, but I was never really a part of church until I was post-college in Boston. And I sat under the ministry of a good pastor, a man named Matt Cruz, who ruled well and labored in preaching and teaching well. And I tell you, I will never be able to repay him for what he did for me. The intangible, invisible things. He taught me grace. I had never understood grace before in my whole life. And it was this freeing, priceless blessing that I cannot repay. He taught me the gospel. He taught me mission. He gave me a community to belong to. He trained me about what it means to be a dad or a husband or a pastor. So much of my life has his fingerprints on it. Now, how gross would my heart be if I quibbled about returning to him support or providing for him in in lieu of all the things he's provided for me. Paul's point is, if a church has a good pastor, one who rules well and labors in preaching and teaching, if a church has a good ox, a good farmer, then that man should eagerly, by the church, be supported and be concerned considered worthy of double honor. That is, we respect him well and we pay him well. Now listen, many of you come from churches. Some of you don't and this is brand new for you. For those of you that come for churches, you've often seen that what we do is we tend to go to one extreme or the other rather than what Paul says here. When it comes to pastors, we tend to have either churches will have sort of a prosperity theology, garbage, or a poverty theology, garbage. And some of us have come from one of those two places, right? You know of, and the reason any conversation about money and pastors is so uncomfortable is because you've been flooded with all the scandals you've heard and all the garbage you've heard of bad pastors and bad churches. And so we tend to hear of nonsense like prosperity theology, right, where pastors are flying in private jets, and living in mansions bigger than you can imagine, and wearing diamonds on their fingers the size of ring pops. And you're going, man, that is gross garbage to be discarded. But more than likely, many more of us have come from churches with sort of a poverty theology for pastors. He serves God. You know what that means? Let's pay him dirt. Because that'll keep him good and humble. Because he serves God. Right? And God will provide for him and let him be good and humble. And and the thing is, we're thinking he's going to do a really good job. But the whole time, he can't stop thinking, my kids are getting really skinny. My wife is getting really skinny. Right? Garbage. And Paul's saying, neither of that. 
We respect him well, and we pay him well. Look, 1 Timothy 3 has already said, if you're calling a pastor, make sure he's not a lover of money. So the kind of man that you call ought to be the kind of man you have no doubts about. He's not a lover of money. He's not doing this for a paycheck. Now, let me, let me talk about us for a second. Thankfully, I can tell you, none of this is coming from a place of griping or complaining. I am so grateful to God for so much of us and so much of Seven Mile Road. And I hope that as you hear this text, that you know that your pastors are not lovers of money. I can tell you about Binu, who left a job with health benefits and now is earning much less with no benefits. I mean, he busted his knee, and the first thing he cried out is, I have no insurance, right? But, but hear me, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Hopefully you know that we are not lovers of money who would gladly do this for free, who would make every provision that we could to do this for free. And if you have good pastors, then your heart also ought to be to respect them well and pay them well. And I want to say to that too, one of the most precious memories I have of the season when we were calling Binu to pastor, we had a core group members meeting and brought up the idea of calling him. One of the only questions we got from one of the brothers in the room was, if Binu is going to do this and serve our church, then we've got to make sure that we support his family. Are we financially able to do that? What a godly, right question. We never have even preached this passage, and yet, that's what the Spirit does. It produces a right heart. And that is a question we ought to repeatedly be asking. Hear me. I am saying this because for as long as God has Seven Mile Road around, long after your pastors now are in the grave, may this always be a church that is generous in providing for its leaders if they are good pastors who rule well and labor in preaching and teaching well, that we would then respond by respecting and treating them well and paying them well. We honor good pastors. That's what we do. Now, the Bible is not naive, though, so as to think that you'll only have good pastors or that churches only have good pastors. Unfortunately, the Bible knows all too well that not all pastors are good. And so now the text turns to address how do you deal with bad pastors? Look at verse 19 and 20. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So now he sort of shifts and says, now how do you deal with bad pastors? Let's start again by defining what is a bad pastor, just like we define what a good one is. And in the text, it's very simple. A bad pastor is one who, verse 20, persists in sin. A bad pastor is not judged by his preaching or his visionary or his ability with spreadsheets or any of it. A bad pastor, in the text at least, is one who is persisting in sin. That is ongoing, continuous, unrepentant, flagrant, Christ-dishonoring sin. Now, if that shows up in the life of a pastor, how is the church to relate to that? 
Well, first of all, what the text says is we're not to jump to conclusions every time someone brings an accusation or a charge against the elder. Right? Listen again to verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what that's saying is, listen, we need to have some caution here. We don't jump every time someone talks smack about a pastor. John Calvin said this, listen to this quote. He said, none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. Hear that again. None are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. What he's saying is, look, if you're a pastor, you've got a giant bullseye on your head and slander and accusation and charges come with the job. It's just part of the work. I can tell you that even for myself. If I told you all the things that I've heard or even showed you all the emails I've received, you would be amazed. The latest thing that I heard about me just about a month ago was that I was driving around in a $100,000 car. That was sort of the word on the street. Now, I don't know if the prices of Toyota Camrys have gone up or 95 Nissan Quests are now like this antique car, but, but that was a real word on the street about me. And here's Paul's point. Listen, you don't jump every time there's a charge against a pastor. That comes with the job. There, there's sort of a bullseye. And so don't admit a charge. He says, look, don't give credence to every accusation. Don't run down every charge. Don't give ear to all the gossip. In fact, he's saying, unless there is substantiated evidence, don't even admit the charge. Now, he's not raising a bar here. He's just calling for the same practice that would have been used for anyone. That is, unless you have two or three reliable folks giving substantiated evidence, don't admit that charge. Because th they're not God, but they're not garbage either. So we're not going to go to either extreme. He says, however, if there is evidence of sin, if there is substantiated evidence, and if there is particularly ongoing sin, do you hear that? Persist in sin, verse 20. Listen to what he says. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they, the rest may stand in fear. Here's what he's saying. When there is persistent, ongoing, flagrant sin, unrepentant sin, you call this pastor to account and he will not relent from his sin. If there is ongoing, persistent, public, gross sin, then it must be rebuked, the text says, publicly. Persistent, substantiated sin in the life of a church elder is a public church matter. That's weighty. There may be church discipline things in the church that can be dealt with privately. And yet, if there is ongoing, unrepentant sin in the life of an elder, it must be rebuked in the presence of all. Paul's point here is not a witch hunt, right? No man is perfect. We've already known that. And yet, Paul's point is, if there is flagrant sin, then you call all the members of the church together, and you stand this mountain up, and you rebuke him publicly in the presence of all. That's sober. That's weighty. And Paul says this not because his motivation is to air this man's dirty laundry. Paul says this not because his motivation is to shame this elder in front of everyone. Listen to what his motivation is. He says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand 
in fear. Paul's point is, as you call this man out and rebuke him publicly in front of the whole church, that fear might spread to all the other elders and to all the other church that might promote godliness. That's what Paul's after. That's what God's after. God wants to take even this wicked sin and use it to promote holiness in the church so that when you hear this man publicly rebuked, there might be this fear that shudders in your own heart that goes, I never can do that. I, I got to stay away from that. That's the point, right? It, it's sort of like this story from Acts where there's this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. If you read the book of Acts, there's this Christian couple and they come and they tell the church, here's all our wealth. We're giving it all to the church. Now they're holding some back and they're lying to the Holy Spirit. And you know what happens? This is not Old Testament, immature, hothead God. This is New Testament. It's sort of the same age we live in. They literally drop dead. They finish lying. The husband dies. The wife comes in, says the same lie. She dies. And do you know what the church goes? The church goes, oh, shoot. We, we can't do that. And, and the, literally, the text says, fear spread everywhere in the church. Because everyone in the church realized God's not playing games. God can't be mocked. Literally, church could cost you your life. Right? He gathers these people and they die in the presence of all and it says fear spread throughout the whole church. That's the point. This public rebuke is so that fear might come and we might move to godliness. I'll tell you, every time I hear about a pastor falling and I hear about it often, in every circle I'm in, I hear about it. I can tell you in my heart, I do not feel this smug condescension. <laughs> How could he do that? I feel this dreadful fear. God, please don't let that be me. I feel this fear that my heart has so much stuff that's so prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. And I'm begging God, seal my heart. Seal my heart because my, my tendencies are exactly that same way. I can tell you more recently, I heard of this very gospel-centered, theologically precise, great church-planting pastor. Not only fell into sin, but then just walked out on Jesus in unrepentant sin. And the weighty thought on my soul was, he had better theology than I could ever have. Talked about the gospel more clearly than I ever could. And if he's not immune to it, why would I assume that I am? A shudder comes over your soul. I can tell you this, in all the statistics, and there are so many about pastors that fall, I've never met a pastor that went into ministry hoping to be a fraud, hoping to fall, waiting to be found out as a phony. Everyone goes with good intentions. And yet fear should grip all of us. I remember my last day of seminary in this one class on pastoral ministry. The last class, we had done all these case studies on different pastors who had fallen. And it was just this mountain of the worst kinds of sin. Scandals of every sort. And you finish reading all these case studies and everyone's just depressed. And I remember the last word the professor said to us as we were ready to hand, leave the door is, don't say to yourself, that could never be me. But say to yourself, that must never be me. And that stuck with me like a tattoo on my brain. It's not that this stuff couldn't be us. It's that this stuff 
must never be us. Rebuke them in the presence of all so that fear may come upon the whole church. That's why you, persi- you deal with this sin seriously. Right? Do you, do you get a feeling for how sober and serious this whole thing is? In fact, you understand how sober it is with what he says next. Look at verse 21 for a second. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. All right? Paul's not playing around. He's saying, Timothy, keep these rules, son. I charge you in the presence of Jesus and of God and the elect angels. I'm calling everybody in heaven to witness. You keep these rules. I charge you. Till now, throughout the whole letter, Timothy was the one who was supposed to be doing the charging and the commanding. And now Paul turns around and says, I'm charging you in the presence of God and of Jesus and the angels. You keep these rules. You don't do anything out of prejudging or partiality. So don't admit a charge before there's evidence. And don't let sin go because you're partial to the guy. You keep these rules. Pastors are not God where they're untouchable and they're not garbage where we take every charge against them. We are to honor good pastors and rebuke bad ones. So, when there is a charge, make sure there's evidence. Don't prejudge. But if there's evidence, make sure that you rebuke. Don't be impartial. If a church has good elders, we honor them. If a church has bad elders, we rebuke them. And since this is all so serious, he has one last word for us to hear, which is, if all of this is what we should keep in mind, then how should we relate to potential pastors? And that's verses 22 to 25. Listen to this quickly. It says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Good elders, we honor them. Bad elders, we rebuke them. And here, lastly, he's saying, and potential elders, we take our time with them. Uh, Where am I getting that? Verse 22, he says, don't be hasty with the laying on of hands. What's laying on of hands? Laying on of hands is the idea of calling a pastor. Throughout the letter of Timothy, we've heard that when Timothy was ordained or called to be a pastor, the hands were laid on him to set him apart for that work. If you were here four months ago when we called Binu to pastoral ministry, we laid hands on him as a sign of calling him to this work. And so he's saying here, don't be hasty, don't be quick with that. Don't be hasty with calling someone to be a pastor. Don't be hasty with laying on of hands because if you want to avoid all the mess that comes with bad pastors, take your time with potential ones. Don't be hasty with calling them. If character is so much at the heart of this, 1 Timothy 3, then it takes a good long while to examine character to make sure that there's nothing fishy or phony there. So don't be hasty. When it comes to potential pastors, take your time to examine their heart, to examine their character, to make sure they're 1 Timothy 3 men so that you won't come to the day when you have to rebuke them publicly before all. 
He says, do that so that you don't share in the sins of others, so that you're not implicated by calling a guy too fast who ends up to be a fraud. And he says here, keep yourself pure. And he's talking to Timothy, and then you get this most odd tangent in the world, right? Verse 23, and by the way, no longer drink water only, but take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. And you go, what is Paul doing? Why is that there, right? He's, he's telling Paul, listen, I want you to keep yourself pure. Don't have anything to do with these other folks. But then it's almost as he's talking to Paul, he says, but make sure that you don't go to the extreme that the rest of the false teachers are. If you remember back in 1 Timothy 4, there was this section where the false teachers were telling everyone to abstain from everything, certain types of food, certain types of drink, make sure no one gets married or has sex, every kind of extreme so that we could all be pure. And when he says, I want you to be pure, he's trying to remind him, but not the kind of purity that the false teachers are talking about. So don't go and make sure that you only drink water. Make sure that you drink some wine for, I guess in that day, there was some medicinal purpose for wine. And so Timothy's developing these stomach ulcers from being in Ephesus. And he says, make sure when I tell you to be pure, you don't go to the extreme of the false teachers in 1 Timothy 4. Take a little wine for your stomach. Either way, the summary point is drink wine. I have a verse for it, right? <laughs> he then comes back to the point, And he says, listen, take it slow when you lay hands on these men. And here's why, verse 24 and 25, and then we're done. Because the sins of some people are conspicuous. They can be seen, and it goes before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also the good works that are, of, of, are conspicuous. They can be seen, but even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Here's, here's his point. Timothy, don't be hasty with the laying on of hands. Don't be quick to call pastors. You know why? Because people are sort of like icebergs. Nine-tenths of who they really are are beneath the surface. And it takes a long time for you to see what's under there. Sure, the, the sins of some people are conspicuous. It, it pa paves a path to hell. Everyone can see it. But the sins of some people are hidden. It's going to appear over time. So you know what you need? Time. Time to examine this man to make sure that you know what's down there. Likewise, the good works of some are conspicuous. You can see all the good, but some are hidden, but they'll appear. You know what? Over time. So you know what you need? Time. There's a bunch beneath the surface. And if you're going to see what surfaces over time, that's what you need, time. So don't be hasty with the laying on of hands. Make sure that you've known this man fully. He's saying here, look, there could be a man who looks perfect and yet proves to be a mess. And there could be a man that looks like a mess that proves to be perfect. And the only way you'll know is time. This is why we've tried our best here to put together an elder track where we put men who sense a calling to it for a considerable amount of time so that we can watch their life closely, so that we can examine the nine-tenths that are underneath the surface, so that we can not be hasty with the laying on of hands. This is sober. This is weighty. And so let's not be hasty with it. So what he's saying is, how are we all to relate? We treat good elders with honor. We rebuke bad elders publicly, and we take our time with potential elders. Let me say one last thing. Why is all of this so weighty? 
All of this is so weighty because the ministry of these elders is a point to point us to the true elder of the church, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him quickly for a second. Everything that these elders are supposed to be about is to point us all to the true elder, Jesus Christ. And you know who he was? He was an elder over the church who ruled well, king of kings, ruled well, who came to this earth, God in the flesh, and labored in preaching and teaching. And yet we never treated him with double honor. He ruled well. He labored in preaching and in teaching, and yet for all of that, we treated him with unspeakable shame. And though he did not persist in sinning, there was no sin in him whatsoever. Yet many charges were admitted against him, false charges and false witnesses. And because of it, he was put to open public rebuke for us. That's who all of this is pointing to. The true elder who was treated in the exact opposite ways of this passage. He was without sin and yet was publicly disgraced. He labored in preaching and teaching. He ruled well and yet instead of double honor we gave him every imaginable shame. And he was crucified naked, shamed on that cross, publicly rebuked for us so that we could be grafted in and treated differently. And the ministry of elders are supposed to point to him. That's why if you have a good elder that does that, you treat him well. And if you have a bad elder that doesn't, you rebuke him publicly. And we take our time to make sure we find men who can do that, who can point us to Jesus, our true elder. Let's pray together.